So again, if you will take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. We continue our study of Hebrews this morning, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Entitled this sermon, Jesus, the Second and Greater Adam. I hope for reasons that will become obvious as we work our way through this text. But today, in our text before us, the author is moving along from the exhortation he gave last week in the first four verses of this chapter back to exposition, that is, back to explaining Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures, and particularly this time as the fulfillment of Psalm 8. Now, we have much to attempt to unpack in these few short verses, um, but the basic idea is twofold. All right, first is to continue to show Jesus' superiority. So from verse 1 of chapter 1, that's been a key theme, is the superiority of Jesus over all things, and particularly using angels uh, as the example to compare him to. And then secondly, the second part of our text today is to show his solidarity with mankind and the significance of that. So, so what is the significance of Jesus taking on flesh, being born of a woman as we ourselves are? We're going to get into that and see that it is very significant indeed. So with that, let's turn to the text, Hebrews chapter 2, picking up in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray. Our Father, our hearts rejoice that all of your promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we ask now that you would help us to grow in our understanding both of those promises and of their fulfillment. Help us to comprehend as far as is possible the, the magnitude of your love and move our hearts through it to love Christ more and to glory in Him alone. And may it be only your word that goes forth this morning in the Spirit's power and for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, this passage before us is um, certainly one of those passages in the Bible that is most dear to me. Uh, and that's because as a newer Christian... This passage in particular helped me to see how the whole Bible fit together. I hope maybe you can all understand a little bit of, of that difficulty. Uh, maybe you can recall being a new Christian. Maybe you, you yourself are a, a new Christian. Regardless of where you are, we know the gospel. It, it, it teaches us that we are saved through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And so you have these ideas. You have the cross and the suffering that took place there. 
you have the incarnation of Christ that made that possible, that he was born of a virgin there in the little town of Bethlehem, born of Mary. You also have his passion, that suffering we spoke of. You have his death, and then you have his resurrection on the third day, and then you have the fact that we come and are saved by faith alone in this Jesus alone. We can get all of these points. We understand Jesus is our Savior, but sometimes it can be difficult to understand the why of all of that. You see, we understand the end, and we understand that we are sinners. We need salvation. We need to be delivered from God's judgment, but we don't always understand why did it have to happen that way. And so if you've ever asked your, that question to yourself, I encourage you to ask it now. Why did it have to be that way? Why did God have to bring salvation like that? And this particular question is why a lot of Christians struggle to understand the importance of the Old Testament. You see, a lot of times we can read the Old Testament as, well, it's old. We don't need it anymore. We have the new. But certainly Scripture doesn't present it that way. And this passage in particular connects the beginning of God's work in creation to the end for which it was created. And so what we need to understand in approaching this, and I think most of you already do, but let it be stated explicitly that from the very beginning, God had a purpose that he created the world for. And it wasn't a possibility. It was a decreed purpose that he had determined to bring to pass. Now, how all that becomes relevant is because man was the crowning piece of creation, if you will, in the creation event. God created the land, the trees, the birds, the animals, everything else. And then as his final pinnacle of creation, he created mankind, who alone are said to be created in the image of God. As we read in Genesis 1, in his likeness. And so they were to go forth and to bear God's image, to represent him in this world he created, and as his representatives, to have dominion, to rule over creation to the glory of God in heaven. And you remember the first man's name, Adam. Okay, he was the representative not just of himself and his immediate children to follow after him, but of all mankind, what we call a, a federal or a covenant head. And here's where sin comes into the picture. You see, God called him to a perfect personal obedience in terms of the covenant of life or the covenant of works. But you know well and good what Adam did. He did not keep that covenant. He failed. He sinned against God, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so he brought sin and death and the curse of sin upon himself. And in doing so, he forfeited that dominion for which he was created. But this text shows us, along with many other in the New Testament, that this Jesus, a second Adam, or federal head there again, he came and fulfilled man's purpose, earning reward for himself, succeeding where Adam had failed, and thereby establishing his rule over all creation. 
And so the basic picture here is that in Adam, we are fallen, we are liable to judgment, sin, and death. But in Christ, we're restored to the glorious end for which we are or were created. And so he opens then by quoting a portion of Psalm 8. And he begins doing that to to simply show in part the superior position of man in creation. So when we studied Psalm 8 a couple of weeks ago, we, we saw how David was primarily reflecting on the position of man in God's created order, and he was blown away by that, amazed at it, as he looked at the stars of heaven and how magnificent this universe is, at the fact that God created man to have dominion over the creation. And so it illustrates then the superior position of man in creation. And the point is that even mankind himself was created superior to the angels. That is, in terms of the author of Hebrews' argument. Because remember, he's showing Christ is superior, and apparently there's some doubt about that, probably because of the incarnation, right? And so he throws mankind out there and says, consider yourselves, even mankind, though he was made lower than the angels in terms of the angels remaining in heaven and man being placed on earth, the position he was given in God's grand design was one of dominion, one of glory and honor and superiority over the angels. And so in this way, it shows that Jesus' incarnation, that is his being born in the flesh, in no way lessens his superiority to the angels. However, we also have some language in here that expands upon our understanding of Psalm 8. You see the terms, or the phrases, rather, a little while used. We see also the phrase, the world to come. And what that tells us is that what we've already stated, that God created the world with a specific eschatology in mind. That is a doctrine of last things. That's what we mean when we say he created the world with an end in mind, an end which he was going to bring to pass from the very beginning. And that end involved man's exaltation over all things, not the angels. And so having already studied Psalm 8, let's focus on the way that the passage is being used here. It shows how Christ's incarnation, taking on flesh, being born, and his superiority uh, to all things go together. They're not contradictory. All right. So for whatever reason, and maybe you can relate to this, but man's natural thought has a bent to it in which we think of the spiritual realm as superior to the physical realm. And we've seen in church history pretty extreme manifestations of this thought. Maybe you've heard of Gnosticism or the Gnostic heresy. This was one of their trademarks. They essentially separated spiritual from physical things. They said spiritual things are good, physical things are evil across the board. And so in Gnostic thought, there is no category for the redemption of the body. It's only redemption for spiritual things. And so as this thought is applied to men and angels, well, angels are spiritual beings, We are physical beings in addition to having spirits. And so they say, well, mankind must be lower. Mankind must be inferior to the angels. And so the thought goes, well, if Christ took on flesh, if he became a man, born as a man, just as we are, 
then that must necessarily make him inferior to the angels. But the author of Hebrews says, by no means. As we've already said, he points to Psalm 8 and basically says, consider yourself. What is man? What was mankind created to be? Was he created with less authority than the angels in heaven and less status than they are? And the answer is no. But we also need to see how else Psalm 8 is being utilized here. It's not simply a statement of fact, but rather it's also a prophetic word that shows the end for which God created man. Now, here we're going to have to do a little bit of unpacking, because when we preached Psalm 8, we said David is looking backwards. He's looking back to the beginning of creation and marveling, simply in that pre-fall state, at the status that God gave to man. But now, our author in Hebrews takes that same passage and applies it to Christ and uses language that actually seems to point it forward to the end of all things the world to come. So what do we do with that? Well, we see that number one, David was looking backward at original creation when he penned those words quoted here in verses 6 through 8. He was reflecting on original creation. But secondly, you have to remember, he wasn't simply recording his own words. It was the Holy Spirit speaking through him. That's why they're words of Scripture. In fact, that's why, at least I believe, that the author here doesn't say David said or the Psalms say. He simply says it has been testified somewhere. Like he can't remember where he read it. I'm sure he knew where he read it. But it's kind of a, 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 a subtle way of him indicating that it really doesn't matter who the human author was. Because ultimately, these are the words of God. This is God's word. The authority comes from him. And so somewhere it's been testified, what is man that you are mindful of him? You've made him a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've put all things in subjection beneath his feet. It's all that to say, when David wrote those words originally, recording the word of God, he was recording a revelation that has a particular relationship to God's plan of salvation. All right, we call this... Um, God's redemptive historical plan. Going back to that idea that there's this overarching goal and plan that God is operating within. And so these things are not disconnected from one another. They all go together. And so apparently, even David himself, though he was reflecting backwards, was also looking forward. Because we see this language, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. That is apparently, even in the original creation, that indicates to us that the estate in which man was created in was not the estate that he was intended to continue in. In other words, Adam was in a sort of probationary period. He was to obey. If he obeyed God's word, then he would have been translated, we would say, into a state of eternal blessedness. He would have had eternal life. That was the end. And in that eternal life, he would have had the fullness of the glory and the honor and the dominion that he had been created for. So then, 
the fact that David looks back at that creation and still marvels at the estate in which man was created, that tells us that David did not simply expect that this was some bygone era that he's just waxing eloquent over and going to later lament that it's no longer a reality. No, it reminds us of Genesis 3 that there was a promise of salvation that came immediately after the fall. And in that promise of salvation, what man was originally created for is still the goal that God is going to restore for his people. And that's why it's relevant to Hebrews chapter 2 and to the reality of who Christ is. is because that restoration comes in Christ. Now before we move on, I want to just briefly note that what the psalm or what we're what's happening here in Hebrews chapter two as well is it's demonstrating Christ's identification with mankind or his solidarity, as we've said. That's why a passage that highlights the position of mankind is used, right? Because man was created to be priest kings over God's creation. He failed, but here comes Christ born as a man. And it tells us then the only way for us to be restored is for one who represents the entire human race, like Adam, to come in and to succeed where he had failed. The only way that's possible is through incarnation. Deity taking humanity to himself. That's what Jesus did. That's who Jesus is, continues to be forever. God and man, fully both in one person. So having established then the connection to Psalm 8, the psalmist, sorry, the author of Hebrews continues there in the second part of verse 8. He says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At this point, we're still talking about man in his original estate. Thus he says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So here is where the author makes it explicit that he's viewing Psalm 8 as prophetic. And he does this in part by pointing out that the fact that the glorious existence spoken of in the psalm is not a present reality. Right? All things put in subjection, that's not the world we live in. And so in that way, there's a disconnect there. It's a reminder that man fell from that blessed estate, as we've already said. He rejected God's means to exaltation and instead chose to seek out his own, and in doing so, he forfeited what should have been. So we have to ask ourselves a question then of this apparent contradiction that we see. In that now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control, but at present we do not yet see that. What's the deal? Why is our experience contrary to what has been written? Well, there's a couple of different options here, and I'll point out one to you. One is, Calvin takes this to be actually speaking exclusively of Christ. Calvin says that this whole passage from the beginning of the quotation of the psalm is talking about Christ, not about man and his original creation. And so he has in view the fact of what Paul brings up in 1 Corinthians 15, that yes, Christ is conquered by his death, but there's an order to things. He's conquered by his death, but things must happen in their their order. Christ was the first fruits, his resurrection. And then we, who are united to him, will be 
raised to glorification, to eternal life with him when he comes, and then comes the end, when death is finally defeated. And while what Paul writes is certainly true, I do not believe that's what's being addressed here for a couple of reasons. First of all, Psalm 8 is not ripped out of its context. Now, sometimes the authors of the New Testament will quote Old Testament scriptures in, you might say, unique ways that takes a little bit of homework to figure out exactly what they mean. But nevertheless, they're never just ripping scriptures out of context. The context always matters. And as we have clearly seen, Psalm 8 is talking about man, mankind. Secondly, we see that Jesus' name is not even mentioned until verse 9. And there, it's mentioned as a contrast to what's been said thus far. Okay, we see that in the words, but we see him. Okay, so there's man and what has been said, then there's Jesus. That's your two contrasting elements here. And so the flow of thought is simply this. Man was created in God's image, given rule and dominion with the end of exalted glory. That was the goal. Then he moves on and says, we do not yet see that, but we do see Christ. That's the flow of thought. And the point is that Christ is the evidence which guarantees the fruition of what man was created for. In other words, we would not necessarily be crazy for coming to say, just through verse 8, with some doubt and saying, all right, that sounds great, but what's being written about here, I don't see that. So how am I to believe that that's true? Well, the answer would not be wrong to give the sin Sunday school answer, Jesus. That's the answer. (laughs) But we mean that in the most serious of ways. The author is saying, here's how you know. Jesus. It's because we're not being restored by God giving us some encouragement, giving us a boost, and equipping us to fulfill the law on our own. That's not the plan at all. We are saved and restored only in and through Christ Jesus himself. And therefore, how can we know that this promise is still to come, that we will enjoy the blessings that are here? Well, it's only in and through Christ Jesus. The reason things are not in subjection to us now is because of our sin. That's the very thing that makes it so that we need Jesus. And this is where we see Christ as Lord and Savior become personal. As an example, if you think about um, representation in our form of of government, our, our political government, how we work. We're representational. Um, it goes from the local level all the way up to the national level. It's always a dangerous thing to use political examples in a sermon, but I'm a glutton for punishment, so we'll do it anyway. But it's a good example because the idea is that not everybody comes and argues in the Senate. You know, we don't get all 350 million Americans together and try to make decisions. It would never work. We use representatives. They're elected and they speak for the people all the way up to the very top. And so we may not like uh, necessarily who our representatives are, but in our form of government, they speak for us. They represent the whole. All right, that is what representation is. Well, God designed mankind to function representationally. 
And he created Adam to be that representative of the entire human race. Again, a federal or covenant head. So that whatever came of Adam is what would come of all those who came after him. And that's why we all find ourselves in a state of sin and misery. And devoid of the blessings for which we were created. Yet, we read that Jesus became like us, a second Adam to succeed and conquer where Adam failed and was conquered. That gives us a whole new perspective on what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him. We see his care in creation and how he created us to be creating man for dominion, and we see all the more his care in the gospel, redeeming man from sin. Now this passage focuses on generalities, but we know that not everyone receives the blessing of restoration in the gospel. And I want to make that clear because we've got to be careful here. If we're saying, okay, all are fallen in Adam, what does that mean? All are redeemed in Christ. no. It does not. Well, how then is one redeemed in Christ? How do they be restored to these blessings of, of this world to come, which is subjected to mankind, who's crowned with glory and honor, and so on? Well, it goes back, we begin with the doctrine of sin. And I want to prepare you that we're working our way, it'll be a little while from now, but in chapter 11, we're going to get to understand what is meant by faith. Because faith is the, the instrument through which we receive the blessing of redemption, of justification, of, of restoration to God. And in chapter 11, the whole thing is about faith. And it uses all these historical examples of men who have lived by faith, who have conquered armies, who have led the nation of Israel, who have founded nations. But we need to know this about faith. It's only necessary where sin exists. And we don't want to get on too far down a rabbit trail here, but that says something about original creation. In the Garden of Eden, faith was not necessary because sin didn't exist. Adam was not called to be brought to this blessed estate by faith. He was called to be brought to that state by works. Do this. And you shall live. He failed, obviously, and where that corruption exists, that meant a person no longer has hope in themselves. If you're a sinner, which you are all sinners, just as I am a sinner, just as every person apart from the Lord Jesus Christ is a sinner, that person has no hope in himself. And so what can he do? He can only look to another. By what? Faith. Titus 1 and verse 15 says, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. That can make us wonder, well, what exactly is Paul talking about there? Well, the point is that man's depravity, his, his inward innate sinfulness is such that everything associated with him is impure. No matter what he does. He may do things that are outwardly good. He might 
help somebody up who's fallen down. That's a good thing in and of itself. But that in and of itself doesn't make it a good work because he is defiled in himself. He defiles the work that he would seek to bring to pass. And so what that tells us then is there's no amount of effort or striving or anything that we can exert to bring ourselves into a, a good position before God, to bring ourselves into right standing before Him. There's absolutely nothing we can do. The only way to be made pure, to use Paul's language, is through another, by faith in Jesus Christ. And so what faith is then is simply the receiving and resting upon him as he has offered to us in the gospel. And as always, the gospel is scandalous to us because we're like, but I feel like I need to do something. It's always our bent. We feel like we need to do. And the very nature of the gospel itself says, done. And so faith then is accepting him as your representative before God. Resting in his representation that he is enough, he is good. And joyfully confessing that he alone is the only way you'll ever be accepted by his merits and not your own. And that is what it means to to live by faith. And it's why there's no contradiction between Psalm 8 and our present reality, but we see Jesus. He's procured what was lost in the fall. He has secured it for himself, and for us. So finally in verse 9, we see that, but we see Jesus. Rather, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So much is said in this one verse, but the essence of it is this. While we certainly do not yet see man enjoying the blessedness intended for him, we do see that Jesus came and walked the path which man was to walk, that he was crowned with glory and honor because he succeeded where man failed. He is the fulfillment of the purpose of mankind, which means that the only way for man to enjoy the blessedness for which he was created is through Christ Jesus the Lord. And we've already observed how the text points to Jesus as the fulfillment. But note that the cause of Jesus' glory and honor, there in verse 9, it's said to be suffering and death. All right? Crowned with glory and honor because, there's the causal statement, of the suffering of death. It's much the same as what's written in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where Paul says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Essentially, the same thing. But remember this. While man was crowned with glory and honor, by virtue of being made in God's image, he was destined for much greater glory and honor, we might say. Remember, we said if he would have remained faithful, or really if he would have remained obedient in that original estate, if he would have fulfilled the covenant of works, then he would have been translated to that higher estate of eternal blessedness. Well, by his death, Jesus fulfilled that covenant of works. And because of that death, the suffering of death, he was exalted to the right hand of the Father which if you remember, was already stated back in Hebrews 1, 3, and 4. 
after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father on high. And it happened according to the grace of God. That's so important because, again, it's a sometimes difficult for us to wrap our minds around how if Jesus is, is, will be, always has been fully God, then doesn't that mean he's already crowned with glory and honor? Yes. But this is written in terms of his office as Savior. Okay, he came and stood in our place and earned the glory and honor that God had intended for mankind. And he did so by that perfect personal obedience where Adam had failed. So what does it mean then that he tasted death for everyone? That can be a sticking point for some, but it says that through the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Well, Henry Alford, he's a renowned Greek scholar of of the 19th century, he put it this way, He said, the whole argument of this passage proceeds not on the vicariousness of Christ's sacrifice, but on the benefits which we derive from his personal suffering for us in humanity, not on his substitution for us, but on his community with us. And he's exactly right. Now, while we have made plenty of application towards Christ as our substitution, and the gospel hangs on that very thing, the point of the text is is big picture. Okay, Because the issue is that there's no one righteous but God alone. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And another problem is God is not a man like us. So what does that mean for mankind? What hope is there? Well, the solution is what? God took humanity to himself. That was Jesus being born in the likeness of men. Note, he didn't change his being. He didn't lessen himself in who he was. He didn't modify his divine essence. No, he yoked himself to mankind in the Son through humiliation. And thereby in tasting death, he did not solve only part of the issue. That's why it uses the phrase, he tasted death for everyone. It's to combat that idea that, well, maybe one would say, all right, yeah, Jesus Christ paid for your sins and got your reward, and so I'm glad he did that for you, but there's another way for me. There's still another way that I can work this thing out. No, the author says he tasted death for everyone. In other words, in our sinfulness, in Adam, there's no one else to whom we may look. You cannot find another way to be redeemed from your sins, to be freed from the guilt and the suffering of eternal torment and death that is due to you because of those sins, there is no other way but Christ. He is the second, the greater Adam. And he came so that all who are found in him would be made recipients of the eternal blessings intended for mankind from the very beginning. Simply put, there's nowhere else to look. And so from the very end of this text then, I want to reach back to the beginning just to make a a final concluding note, and that's this. Isaiah 46, 9 says that God has declared the end from the beginning. That is, before he ever uttered a word of creation, 
he declared the end of all things. Practically speaking, that means he's not reactionary. That means that he did not create a perfect world and then become surprised by sin and say, well, that changes things. Didn't see that coming. How can I work with this? No, Hebrews says that when God created man, the fullness of the subjection that he gave to him would be found in the world to come. Now that's pretty mind-blowing if you really think about it because that means that Adam being made in the image of God Adam being commanded to have dominion, to fill the earth with the glory of God, and even the sin that came after that. It was all a means ultimately towards the humiliation, the exaltation, and the final victory of Christ, the true image of God. In other words, from the very beginning, it was his plan to send his son to exalt Christ Jesus as Lord to the glory of God. Of God the Father. And so the conclusion is really what we stated from the beginning and what we've been stating in our entire study through Hebrews thus far. Jesus is everything. He's the purpose of creation and mankind foremost. His purpose is the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And so as redeemed people, that is our purpose, to glorify God in Christ Jesus. And yet, and yet, his incomprehensible kindness to us is that he has destined us to be partakers of this glory. That is the glory that Jesus earned for himself with which he has been crowned with. He took our place that we might be raised with him to this, to share in all of his benefits, to declare that he alone is Lord and King, Redeemer and Savior, to the glory of God the Father forever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we cannot think of the gospel without asking the question, who are we that you should be mindful of us? The knowledge of our sin only compounds our wonder at the loving kindness that you have shown to us, and for that we are so grateful. But we ask, Lord, increase our gratitude, increase our joy in the Savior as we meditate on who He is and upon what He has done. And keep this word of the cross ever in our hearts and on our minds that we would be living examples of the power of Christ to save sinners like us. Thank you again, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand. Thank God, Lord. Song for him, no one turn.